This is Rumblestrip. There are parts of teaching that are excruciatingly boring, like giving a spelling test, God help me. I would sing the words, you know, colony. The kids are like, oh my God. That's Daphne Kelmar. Daphne was a school teacher for over 20 years. She taught in California, in Massachusetts, and then in Vermont. I think it's fair to say that she was one of those teachers, one of the exciting and inspiring ones, one of the teachers who sees every kid. I met her through my friend Tobin Anderson. The three of us met up in a diner in Hardwick, where she lives, and I liked her immediately. Maybe it was a way that she appreciated the waitress who used to be a student of hers. Or maybe it was because I could tell right off that she doesn't have the kind of boring composure of some grown-ups. It seemed like the conversation could have gone anywhere and maybe ended up in a road trip to a corn maze or something. Like she'd be game for that if it came up. Now Daphne is a children's book author, and she's just published her first book called A Stitch in Time. We sat in her kitchen by an open window. It had that late summer sound to it, the sound I associate with the beginning of school here in Vermont. We talked about her new book, but mostly we talked about what it's like to fall in love with a new batch of kids every September and then let them go. Welcome. I was a teacher for 20 years. I went into teaching a little bit late because I lived all across the country doing all kinds of odd jobs. I was a short-order cook for a number of years. Being a short-order cook was incredibly good training for teaching because you have to juggle. It's incredibly stressful. And then when you walk into a classroom, you have to meet the needs of each of those individuals, which is extremely difficult. One is a BLT hold the mayo and the other is eggs over easy and you have to juggle all of those. But I loved it. It was my passion. You know, I had like 75, 80 pairs of rubber boots and so I outfitted each class when they came in and we'd put numbers with with nail polish on the boots so they could find them. And we'd all put our boots on, even in the rain. I had ponchos and go out and do all these experiments in the creek or the pond. Fifth grade was my favorite. Third graders were borderline. I loved them dearly, but they really are kind of like lemmings in that they will sort of walk off the cliff for you. And I, I, I love that. And they adore you. And you, you are a goddess. I mean, for those little guys, wow. It doesn't matter who you are, what you do. They, they, you know, you are their teacher. And I, I kind of wanted to earn it. And it, it was a little creepy. I shouldn't say it was a little, it was a little creepy. And I couldn't go lower than third because I didn't like the whole bodily fluid thing with the little guy, the kindergartners and you know, they're throwing up all the time. And I had one kid in third grade who had a snot bubble running down his nose the entire year because he loved animals and he had like 20 hamsters and gerbils and snakes in his room, but he was allergic. And he had them all in his room at home. And he would just come in, he had this snot. I, I love that Jack. He was fabulous, I loved him, but ew. So fifth was my favorite. They're perfect. I think the human species is as perfect as it gets. 
at 10, 11 years old. They are just starting to think abstractly and come up with these extraordinary observations about the world and questions, and they're independent and animated and curious. Their hands are just up in the air. They're running around looking at things. It's like they're just bursting, and there are no hormones till about May. So fifth grade, I think human beings are perfect, and it's sad we have to grow up. I read out loud to my students. I still read aloud to my sixth graders when I taught sixth grade, and they would, I had all these pillows and a rug, and they would all be lying on the floor, and that was when sneakers started coming up with the Velcro closures. They, they just came in. It was adorable because the boys and the girls sort of are noticing each other. And it was a sort of foreplay that the girls would undo the Velcro on the boys' sneakers. And I just found that to be the most charming thing. It's like having insects in the room because they'd all be undoing the closures on each other's Velcro sneakers. It's like a, it's, it's a creative act to be the, a teacher in a classroom to make this one thing together. And then you give it away. And the kids have to give it away. The, you create a community together. You have in-jokes. You have rituals that you only have that year because something happened. Like I, I had this one kid in fifth grade, Kyle, who couldn't sit still, and I let him stand at his desk, because I, I don't care if he stands at his desk and he gets his work done, that's fine with me. And the kids were fine with it, because my one rule in my classroom is, you can't be mean, you have to be nice. And we didn't do this whole, let's come up with classroom rules and put them on the board. and Because I think if you formalize it, you don't internalize it. If someone's mean in the classroom, we stop everything and we talk about it. If it's really important, then you do stop everything. And it might be some really trivial thing, but it was mean. So over time, it's, it's not like it's this little Garden of Eden because we're all people, but we all are trying. And in California, the classrooms are all have a door that goes outside. They're just all one story. And so we had a door going outside, which was fantastic. But there was a landscape bank, a walkway, and then a bank. And there were these fabulous lizards that scurried around in the foliage. And Kyle was kind of obsessed with the lizards. And if he saw one, it made it very difficult for him to get anything done. So we had an arrangement. He would try really hard. But then he would signal me by tapping his forehead, and I would decide whether he could go out, and I would nod. And then he would get up, and he had to walk very quietly outside, and then he would run around like a lunatic and catch a lizard. And then he'd get it out of his system, and then he would come back. And I loved Kyle. And he accomplished a lot that year, and I think it really had to do with also the kids seeing that is okay too 
is rather than my critiquing his behavior and saying, Kyle, sit down. Kyle, stop looking at the lizards. Kyle, you can't go. No, Kyle, you can't go outside. So that all the kids start to echo that, that Kyle is this kid that the teacher's always yelling at. But if Kyle has an outlet for that, then it's not just the teacher that teaches. It's not just the teacher that makes a kid feel like part of the group. It has to be the whole group. And then I took a year off. And in the next classroom, he got pretty much destroyed by the teacher because he, she put him out in the hallway because she said he was too disturbing during tests with all his movements and ostracized him and his and when I came back I switched grades and I and I had him for another year and we had to piece it all back together that experience and and knowing what the other teacher had done I've never been so angry I think at at we are the people who care for these kids and help them grow and it, it made me so angry and I I think there are some teachers that are very middle class very bourgeois that 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 have a very narrow range of acceptable behavior in their classroom and it makes me nuts because that means there's a huge number of kids who are on the edges who are marginalized whether it's through their behavior or whatever else they get harmed not only do they not grow, do they not learn, but they get harmed, they get damaged. And that's irreparable if it happens over and over. And I think the way education is working now is, is because it's low paying, more and more we're going to get people that perhaps don't have the ability to see beyond a kid flailing his hands around. When you first came into a Vermont classroom, what did you, you moved to Hardwick, but you didn't know the little people in Hardwick yet, so you go into this classroom. What was your impression of these Vermont kids when you, first of all, maybe talk a little bit about where we are, about Hardwick. It's a tiny town, 3,500 people, I think, 3,200 people, with sort of a main drag, and then another road down where there's a supermarket and two hardware stores. We have one flashing light. The nearest stoplight, I think, is in Morrisville, which is about 20 minutes away. There's a post office where everybody knows you. You go to the counter, but you don't have to tell them the number of your post office box. They know everybody. There are the winters, which are brutal. The climate here makes you want to hibernate. You do not want to go to work. You should be putting more wood in the wood stove, staying inside, doing survival things, you know, skinning animals, doing, it sort of, it gets really intense. It, it's, it can be a little scary and it's lonely. So the school I taught with was not Hardwick. It was outside of Hardwick and there's a real high percentage of kids who do not have a lot of economic advantages. I taught in a, in a really tiny school in Vermont. I had never been in a small school. And the dynamic of these tiny little classes of kids who had been together since kindergarten. And when I, when I was teaching middle school, we met on Monday. The kids would share what they did over the weekend. 
And I would hear during hunting season, that's what it was. It was all about whether they got their deer. And I had one kid who he said, well, I went crow hunting. And, you know, there's like seven kids. Every Monday morning, we'd sit in a circle and talk about what they'd done. And they were all, yeah, did you get any? Well, I was in the woods, cedar woods, and I turned around and branch stuck me right in the eye almost put my eye out and he had a big scratch on his face big scratch on his face and and they're all going what'd you do well I went home got the axe and chopped the tree down and so we're, we're all we're even the, I mean these we're, we're all just dying why'd you chop the tree down and he's like well it poked me in the eye <laughs> and so I just love that story. But that a kid's out with a gun, first off, in the woods at 12, by himself. And then that a kid's out in the woods with an axe, chopping a big tree down by himself. This was all new to me. This was all this very different world of kids who were much more free than anywhere else I've ever seen before, where they're not having play dates and, and you know, play dates give me a break. They're exploring and they're getting poked in the eye. And it's really okay for kids to get poked in the eye. I mean, it's not okay for them to get permanently damaged, but that's what happens when you're a kid. You get scraped up. I just think we're taking way too many, too much care. So we're not allowing kids to discover who they are and what their limits are or any of that. And then when they get in their 20s, they don't have a clue. They don't have a clue. I think teaching became very difficult towards the end. Everyone's heard this from many, many people about the testing and the restrictions. And they're basically trying to teacher-proof the curriculum. And I felt like I couldn't be a part of that because I, I think it was, it, it was a, a kind of cruelty to kids, the way teaching was moving towards this rote learning and the squashing of curiosity and the, the lack of science and social studies education because the only testing was in math and, and language arts. And I couldn't be their henchman anymore. So I got an idea for a story and I started writing a book. And the, the book I wrote is, that came out in June is called A Stitch in Time. It's for kids 9 to 12 years old. It's set in Vermont in 1927. And I chose a time period that is not a monumental moment in history, and I did that deliberately. One of the things kids also need to know about historical time periods is sometimes nothing big happened and the people were just living their lives. It's about an 11-year-old girl named Donut whose mother died in childbirth and who grew up with her father. And her father was an inventor, sort of engineer type who worked in the local metalworks shop. And he died. He dies off stage. And she discovers very early on that she's going to get hauled off to Boston and she's going to lose her village and her friends and everything she knows. 
And it's about her response to that. And when I was doing research for my book, I kept reading these journals of old-time Vermonters back in the turn of the century. And they're so laconic. They just, they're list. You know, this is how much it snowed. We caught 20 perch. We dug two bushels of potatoes. So-and-so visited for dinner. There's no feeling to it. It's all just this quantitative analysis of one's life. But there's something quite reassuring about feeling that what's important at the end of the day you can quantify versus this emoting, you know, talking about your poor old self, whatever the tragedy is. If you can step back from that a little bit and write down how many quarts of raspberries you picked, does that not make it a little more bearable to be alive? I'm not sure. The hardest thing at the end of the year when I, when I taught elementary and I had a self-contained classroom was giving my kids up at the end of the year. I was devastated because we created in the classroom this world. You shut the door on an elementary school classroom and it is a subversive act. You are responsible for those kids and you're trying to help them learn to be critical thinkers and nobody else is there. And when I would get the new batch of kids in the fall, I would be like, go away, you're not my kids. I want my kids back from last year. And it takes this tremendous leap of the first few weeks to bond with a whole new batch of kids. And, and then I was fine. But it was, it was this mourning process at the end. And then taking it on again, knowing I was giving them up. That was Daphne Kalmar. Her new book is called A Stitch in Time. I'll have links to Daphne's website and to her book on my website, rumblestripvermont.com. Music for the show is from Bruce Codron and his band Esmerine. This song you're listening to is a song he wrote about the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. It's called Northeast Kingdom. You also heard music in the show by Vermont musicians Brian Clark and Mike D'Onofrio. I still have t-shirts if you want to buy one. They say Rumble Strip. It's a podcast. They're 20 bucks plus 5 bucks for shipping. If you've already bought a shirt, I would love it if you could send me a picture of you wearing it from wherever you are, and I'll put it on my website. And also, if you have a minute to make a comment on iTunes or tell your friends about the show, that would be great. My social media and self-promotion acumen is limited, so these comments really do help new listeners find the show. This is Rumble Strip. I'm Erica Heilman. Thank you for listening. Thank you.